Well, hello and welcome to this week's A Photographic Life. We've had a couple of specials um, hit you on the airwaves over the last couple of weeks. I hope you've enjoyed them. But this week we're back to the old formula and the old routine, which I hope you enjoy also. Anyway, I'm going to start off this week with a question. Is it possible to have a photo festival without egos? Well, I'm going to answer it. Yes and no. My experience of festivals in general, creative festivals, design festivals, photography festivals, um, has given me a bit of an insight, I think, into how these things work. Now, the idea usually begins with a few well-intentioned folk who have the idea to spread photography and to set up a festival in a local area. They may have experience in certain areas, but they probably don't have access in all areas. My experience of people who are interested in photography is that they tend not to have connections to people with money, for example, or excellent finance, business or marketing experience. What then happens is that they've realised, they recognise the importance of getting those people on board. And then what happens is a group of trustees comes together. The original people who came up with the idea of the festival then start to have to work with these people, perhaps compromise with these people, and evidently, finally lose control of what they originally wanted. The passion project becomes diluted and egos start to get involved. Too many cooks spoil the broth and they want to make it their own recipe. Egos and agendas become dominant. And the use of that word agenda, I think, is really important. Quite often, those people don't actually have a lot of experience or connections with the medium itself, with photography. They're not necessarily part of the photography world, but would like to be. Quite often, what they also do is they think that a festival has to have a theme. But themes are exclusive. They're not inclusive. They instantly reject work that could have been shown, that could have been included. There are only two uh, examples of festivals, I think, that work in the UK. And this is why I said yes and no concerning that initial question. Uh, Anyway, two festivals that do work uh, without ego. That's Photo North and the Eye Festival, um, both of which are in the UK. And I'm sure that there are festivals outside of the UK that I'm not aware of that work in a similar way. If you know of them, then let me know. But the reason why Photo North and the Eye Festival work so well, in my opinion, is that they're run primarily by one or two people who just work incredibly hard to make things happen. If we look at the photo publishing world, the independent photo publishing world, uh, people like Craig Aikinson at Cafe Raw Books that I often speak about, and actually there's a, a special interview conversation coming up with Craig in future months, which I know you're all going to enjoy, and Ian Sargent at Another Place Press, who we often speak about also, they're one-man bands. They don't have to dilute their passion and enthusiasm. They just have to work incredibly hard to keep things going. 
I suppose, in a way, it's the same situation with the United Nations of Photography. It really is just me. So I don't have to deal with other people's agendas. I just try and respond to what I think that you guys want to listen to and want to get engaged with. I hope I get that right, but often, of course, I might get it wrong. But if I do get it wrong, it isn't because I have an agenda. Another part of uh, festivals that seem to uh, go wrong in my perspective, and I think this is because those trustees start to look at other festivals elsewhere. They look at a template to replicate rather than having the desire to create something original for themselves and also very much about the local area. They all want to be international and in doing so, they so often exclude that local populace, that local community that they should really be speaking to. But the the other point, which I know you all know that I feel badly about, is portfolio reviews, which uh, require a payment. As I've often said, in the UK, this is very different. And from the US, where the paid for portfolio review is much more established. But so often I see uh, festivals setting up these portfolio reviews. And I know of one that's doing it at the minute. And you've got to pay. And obviously, the people who need the portfolio review are so often the people who can least afford it. The festival I'm talking about has actually just brought people in, but it's a very narrow, focused group of people. So that means it's going to be a narrow group of work, a narrow focus of work, I should say, that's going to be shown. All of this is about exclusivity and not inclusivity. It's not about putting an arm around the community. It's about putting a hand up and saying, actually, we're not for you. And I can't see that that's a sustainable model or something that photography needs as it progresses into such a democratic visual language. I've long had an interest in the cowboy lifestyle, uh, clothing, music, and just about everything else that goes along with it. It probably goes back to the great films that I grew up with watching, such as Shane and Giant and Pat McGarrett and Billy the Kid, or maybe watching The Lone Ranger at Saturday morning pictures at the Tooting Granada. Either way, my South London upbringing was a long way from the wide open spaces of Montana. So I'm particularly pleased to welcome to the podcast this week, Landry Major, whose childhood summers were spent on a family dairy farm in Nova Scotia. Her ongoing series, Keepers of the West, takes her back to fields at dawn and the family-run ranches of the American West. She believes that visions of the American West have long been central to our culture, but the way of life of the cowboy in the family-run ranch is fast disappearing, as over half of all family-owned ranches in Montana are run by people over 65 and many of their children are not choosing to remain in ranching. The images she creates are made up of the places and people that have welcomed her into their world to remind us of the arresting moments of grace and beauty found in a life lived under the wide-open western skies. Major's work has been widely exhibited, including at the Griffin Museum of Photography, Winchester, and the J. Paul Getty Museum, I should say. I was doing so well up until that point, so unusual for me. 
Anyway, and so that was the JP got it wrong again. The J. Paul Getty Museum, and she has received multiple awards for her work. Let's hear from Landry, shall we? Hi, this is Landry Major. I'm a fine art photographer based out of Los Angeles, California. I'm answering the question today of what does photography mean to me? And I would have to say it's a two-part question for me. The first part being the most personally profound, which is growing up, I had a father that I, I never knew was married before his marriage to my mother. And sometime in my teens, I found out that my father had been married before and his wife had died after two months back from their honeymoon of a burst ectopic pregnancy. And my father never spoke of her. He never spoke of his life with her before her or what happened. He just closed that door. And years later, when I was in my 30s and my dad had died, we found a photo album in the back of his closet tucked away. And it was a photo album of his life with her leading up to his marriage. And it led me to see a person that I had never seen. It was this man so full of joy and life and smiling ear to ear at his future wife as they were rowing together on a lake and she was taking pictures of him in this ecstatic state of joy I never saw my father in. And I saw one picture of his wife. I saw pictures of her family. I found out that my father, who was not social and was not sporty, had 200 people at his wedding to his first wife, Marjorie, and that he'd been sporty. He had pictures of them sailing and canoeing and hiking and his love of the outdoors. And he was this bon vivant that was dressed like a Ralph Lauren, you know, model sailing. And this is such a profound moment for me photographically, because what it says to me about the power of photography and what it can mean to people who view it in the future. Uh, I wish I had seen these photos while my father was alive, so I could have spoken to him. But they were an incredible gift to me posthumously that I saw this man that my father had been before this tragedy and never was again after it. And moving forward, I hope that as a photographer who's chronicling families on small family-run ranches in the American West, that I'm doing the same for future generations, that I am showing how much these people love each other, that they love the creatures and the land that they are in charge of, that this way of life has such beauty as well as hardship, and that I can show a window into all of these things with the power of an image. So for me, that is what photography means to me. It's a power of memory. It's a power of legacy. It's a power of love and memory. Wow, thank you, Landry, for a powerful uh, contribution to the podcast this week. I never know how people are going to answer that very simple question, but I really thank everybody that goes as deep there as Landry did with her personal confessions and, and I suppose, thought process around photography. It's never about pushing a button on this podcast. 
I think we all know that as photographers, we have to develop a pretty thick skin. We can't allow what people say, what people send to us or... uh, various forms of communication to uh, kind of get to us, really. We have to be a little bit stronger than that. We need to be able to uh, deal with different things and different people. And a photographer who certainly had to do this recently uh, is a photographer who I want to talk about now. And it's a headline that drew me in. A photographer who found Instagram fame for his striking portraits has confessed his images were actually AI-generated. It's an article I saw in Art News. Anyway, it says this, as the followers of Joss Avery's Instagram account continued to increase, so did his guilt. His at Avery Season Art account largely features black and white portraits of sharp facial features and blurred backgrounds. Oftentimes, Avery provided the subject's name and a cutesy anecdote about their life, such as Lucy, a strong woman from the Bronx, or Jared, a Boston photographer. The problem, one Avery struggled to disclose to his 28,000 followers, was that he was creating the images using Midjourney, an AI image generator. Avery made the images by entering a text prompt into the software and then fine-tuning those images using Photoshop. Avery describes the work as AI-generated, human-finished portraits. Well, there's a phrase that maybe we'll be hearing a lot of in the coming years. And through the process of imitating photorealism is, uh, I should say, though the process of imitating photorealism is doubtless laborious among the myriad hashtags that accompanied each image, not one mentioned AI art or generative art. A further issue stemmed from Avery having previously denied that the images were AI-generated and were, in fact, taken on a Nikon D810. So he even wanted to give the camera details. The popularity of the images, which he began posting on Instagram in October 2022, had wildly exceeded his expectations, creating an uneasiness that led him to contact Ars Technica, that's A-R-S Technica, a technology publication. Probably 95% plus of the followers don't realise, he said, the images are AI generated. I'd like to come clean. The online response was varied, with some criticising Avery's dishonesty and others acknowledging the quality of the work. Don't call yourself a photographer or an artist. All you've done is stolen from actual artists, wrote one Instagrammer. You're a prompter that finally grew some semblance of a conscience. Nothing more, someone else commented. When the article uh, was written, they reached out to Avery, but he did not respond to a request for comment. I have to say, um, hats off to Avery on this, not in the way in which he created the work. Although I think a little bit like with Jonas Benedictson, we talked about uh, at Christmas and in the Christmas episode. If you haven't listened to that, highly recommend it. You know, he spoke about the idea of creating the work and then he came clean and said, no, this is what I did and this is why I did it. Maybe Avery's done the same. Maybe Avery has kind of said, yeah, 
I've got a thick enough skin to deal with this and I'm going to I'm going to fess up. And I, I think I kind of I kind of like that, I think. What I also like about this is by being honest, what he's done is he's brought into sharp focus, not just his photographs, but also the issues that we photographers are currently dealing with, with AI. Lots of different words cropping up now. Generative images, for example, the idea of what well, it started on AI, but then it was hand finished as if it was some sort of uh, piece of artwork that was kind of then manipulated having been created. It's so there are so many discussions around this. And I know that there's, there's a lot of heated debate. And obviously, the people responding to Avery there, some of them felt cheated. Maybe Johnny Lydon, Johnny Rotten was right. Have you ever felt like you've been cheated? I mentioned earlier in this episode that we've been putting a few specials together recently. I hope you've really enjoyed them. The idea of the Spirit Photography special, which I hope you've listened to, part one is already out. Part two um, will be coming out over the next couple of weeks. Part one was about Victorian spirit photography uh, in America, and part two is going to be about spirit photography in the UK. Um, the, the point of creating these is not just to, to kind of say, do I believe in ghosts or do you believe in ghosts? It's to tell stories, really. And I think to open up some of the rich past of the photographic medium that sometimes gets forgotten about. As I always say on this podcast, we don't talk about cameras or bo- camera bodies or lenses or um, technique or where to put a light or where not to put a light. I'm far more interested in the why than the how. We live in a time now where we can find out the how very easily online. We can find it in podcasts, but we can also um, go on YouTube and all sorts of different forums and places, and we can find out the how. But I do believe that the why comes from within us. And to find out the why, we need to ask ourselves questions which sometimes can be difficult to answer. By looking back and kind of looking at the history of the medium and hearing the stories of the incredible characters and the incredible things that have gone on, I hope it brings a certain kind of lightheartedness to that journey for the why. Otherwise, it just becomes too suffocating. It becomes too frustrating. And it isn't fun. And I know that every time I speak to anybody about photography, whatever age they may be or whatever their level of engagement, my sort of credo, I suppose, is always have fun. Don't get too hung up about it. Only do the things, excuse me, the things that you want to do. Do the things that work for you. Don't try and fit into somebody else's template. If it doesn't work for you, walk away. That really isn't a problem. But I think what is important at all times, and I think also in the social economic climate that we're finding ourselves in, when so much seems to be going wrong, you need to take care. 